Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com before history is written it's played before it's frozen in time it's fought one shift at a time before it's etched in silver it's carved in ice what happens next will last forever The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 233 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, September 20th, 2020. Shana Tova to all of our Jewish listeners, including myself and, and Jason Evans. Uh, I'm Sam Klein. It's Jewish New Year, and we have Duke basketball things to talk about because that's most of what we talk about here. We also have to talk about the football team really, really blowing a great opportunity uh, to secure an early win against Boston College. We've got some bubble stuff to talk about, so we'll get to all of that. But before we get started, as I said, I am Sam Klein. I am your host for this episode. I am joined, as always, by my two partners in crime, Donald. Donald Wine is in Washington, D.C. Donald, hello. How are you? Good morning. Uh, it's a nice morning. Had a nice weekend. It was supposed to be the start of Oktoberfest, and if there was not a pandemic, I would have been doing this from Munich. Uh, but instead, I am doing this from D.C. I'm not disappointed. Um, just a little little sad that I'm not. No, you can you can be disappointed. No, no, because it, I, I feel like the pandemic, it, it, you know, there's a lot going on right now. So I probably wouldn't have made it anyway, given, you know, what the world has given me the last you know couple months. But I will say that uh, I, I do miss Munich. Munich's a great time. Oktoberfest is a great time. And so I'm looking forward to going next year with all my friends. Jason Evans is also here. Jason, have you removed everything from your cal- from your social calendar that was there but has been ruined by the pandemic? Or do you still have things that you are holding out hope for? Pretty much everything on my social calendar is a Zoom meeting of some kind. (laughs) It's very boring. Actually, my wife and I have started um, getting together with friends on, uh, we have a screened in porch. Uh, It's not huge, but it's big enough that it's easy to be socially distant. And because it is screened in, the uh, wind can blow through quite nicely. And so it is, we figure safe, but yeah. Yeah. Can we move on to something less depressing than the pandemic, please? I Uh, I will say besides pandemic... Congratulations, everyone. We made it to hoodie season because hoodie season has now begun <laughs> in most of the eastern part of the United States after the worst summer ever. So I, for one, have been excited to break out the hoodies that I've been collecting this this uh, summer uh, to wear in said season, the greatest season of the year. I yesterday or two days ago, today's Sunday. Yesterday, I think I put on jeans for the first time since March. Thanks to thanks to the cold weather. And I found I, I put this up on my Instagram, but I found a little stack of what appear to be raffle tickets in the change pocket of my jeans. And I'm I'm trying to figure out exactly what they were for. Friends from school claim that they are for some event we were going to have that never happened. But I, I can't I can't definitively conclude. So if anybody knows what the tickets in my pocket were for, email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com with your guesses. Because and and everyone's right and everyone's wrong because I'll never know. 
Yo, yo, the better guess, the better guess is what was Sam going to win from those raffle tickets? Exactly. Yeah. What is it? Right. (laughs) Right. What was I, what was I in line to win back in presumably March when I put those tickets in my pocket and then put my jeans in the drawer and, and didn't recover them until just this week. However, we have to talk about all kinds of stuff. So the first thing on our little agenda today is that the Battle for Atlantis, which is one of the early season tournaments that that goes on every year, like the Maui Invitational, has been canceled. Duke was supposed to play in the Battle for Atlantis. There was some talk this week about them moving it to South Dakota. We've talked about all the things that that these various exempt tournaments are trying to do to hold on to their to their TV dates. But the Battle for Atlantis is not going to happen. And according to CBS Sports, the one school that is that is really against having the thing go off as planned in in South Dakota is Duke because Duke is trying to hold their own kind of alternate event that is going to be in Durham and has a focus on amplifying social justice. So it's a lot of moving pieces here. There's some schedule speculation here. We love to speculate about schedule on the DBR podcast. So I want to ask this question in two parts. The first is going to be, what do you think about, about Duke pulling out and wanting to do a social distance or a, a social justice event? And then, and then we'll we'll come back and talk about what kind of teams you think we want Duke to invite here. But let's start with what do you think about Duke pulling out of the event, Donald? I'll go to you first. Give me your thoughts on on the news that Duke is not wanting to participate in any alternate battle for Atlantis this year, and what that means for the event and for Duke. Well, I, I think when Atlantis was canceled, and that's to be clear, I think when it, the news initially came out, it came out the way we kind of talked about it. It came out as saying, hey, they're going to move the tournament, and then Duke is no longer going to be in the tournament, but really, the tournament was canceled. Once the tournament was canceled, Duke is under no obligation to do anything associated with the teams that would have been in said tournament that was canceled. So I think when it comes to it, Duke was probably like, do we go to South Dakota, or do we use this opportunity to you know further the work that they have already been doing on campus? And really, Drawing people to Durham, drawing people to play in Cameron, which is something that a lot of teams have wanted to do for a long time, but have never had that opportunity to do or haven't in a long time. That's a big draw. And so I think when it comes to this, I think Duke is saying, hey, we can use our platform to create a basketball tournament that has this, you know, angle for social justice activism and also really the lure of drawing people to play in Cameron or play in, in, you know, in in the triangle area is one that a lot of teams will want to take take the opportunity to do. So, hey, I, hey, hey Donald, Donald, yes. do you think that playing in Cameron is a lure if there aren't going to be fans? I, I feel like a lot of Cameron's mystique is is based around the Cameron crazies. It's not like it's a special, unique court. It's like, uh, look, uh, in 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 baseball, when Camden Yards came out, people wanted to play and see what was very it was a very unique stadium. There are other stadiums that have a lot of characteristics to them. I feel like in basketball, it is the fans that make the experience more than the court because basketball, it's just not that much variety to it. That's true. And and there is something to be said about that mystique that is going to be missing in a, in any tournament, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future because there won't be fans on Duke's campus. But I will say this, the hallowed grounds of Camden Yards are the hallowed grounds of Camden Yards with or without fans. Cameron is what Cameron is with or without fans. And when we're talking about recruits coming to campus and visiting, they don't always view Cameron for the first time with it having 9,314 people. They view it with the bleachers rolled up and and just like I did when I walked into Cameron the first time, the bleachers were rolled up and I was like, whoa, this is it. This is a 10 box. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine what this sounds like with 9300 people in it. That alert alone, I think the fact that people Cameron is Cameron, the fans being there make Cameron even more special and probably as special as what it will be. But Cameron is still Cameron. That that mystique will always be there. The players who have played that on that court before, the games that have taken place, I, I think that is going to be a lure no matter what to draw people to this campus because who knows if they pass up this opportunity if they'll get it again. You know, when opposing teams come to Cameron, I feel like we hear so often, and Donald, you just alluded to it, the initial reaction of, wow, this place is a lot smaller than I expected it to be. 
Do you think there are more of those reactions or fewer of those reactions when a team is going to come play in Cameron and there are no fans? Like, does that amplify the fact that it is so small? Because I think when it's when it's full, it it like yes, it still feels small, but it's sort of like it it it's a full stadium. Like you're coming and playing in front of a, a full crowd, so maybe you don't realize how small it is as opposed to when you walk in and there's no fans in there and and you're sort of thinking about like, well, what does a what does an arena look like? And Cameron looks nothing like any sort of NBA arena or anything like that. Jason, what do you think about? Uh, about Duke potentially hosting a tournament in Cameron with with a bunch of new teams? Uh, So first of all, I think uh, when you come into Cameron and there are fans in it, the fact that it's small means it feels like the fans are on top of you. The the players, they they just sense the, the, the energy that the fans bring from being so close to the floor. I mean, look, a lot of these players, there, there just aren't a lot of schools that put their fans right there on top of the players on top of the court the way duke does there 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 are lots of colleges that may put them in an end zone or put them on one side in cameron they're all over you and the students the students yeah the students right exactly yeah uh and and i think that's a lot of what makes it so so unique i i'm excited for for duke to host this tournament i think i think it's a, a a really cool opportunity for us um you won't get the same kind of atmosphere from Cameron that you ordinarily would, but I think, I, I think unquestionably teams are going to be really excited about being a part of this. Duke has been a a leader on the social justice kind of front, so so I'm certain that uh, and and college basketball is very much all of basketball is embracing the importance of this moment. Um, and I think Duke absolutely did the right thing to say, look, we're not going to just go do what we always do. This is not a time to do the regular holiday tournament kind of thing. This is a time to do something special. And so Duke is trying to set up something special. I will also say when it comes to South Dakota, and you can take this however you want, South Dakota has had multiple events this summer that have led to become super spreader events. People go into South Dakota they have this event, the virus spreads amongst them, and then they bring it back to their respective communities. So when you look at South Dakota's numbers, you go, oh, they're not that bad. I mean, you know, probably 10,000. That's not too bad given the sense of other other stuff. But, I mean, Sturgis was a motorcycle rally that had, you know, 250,000 cases come out of it. But 98% of the attendees were not from South Dakota. So I think Duke is looking at these numbers saying, hey, every time people go to South Dakota, there's a lot of people that are lax. A lot of a lot of the rules up there have been lax uh, with regards to mask wearing and stuff like that. And it's probably going to be very hard to create a bubble with seven other teams from across the country uh, also in South Dakota and then figuring out how to go back with quarantine rules and stuff like that. So I think Duke was like the logistics are equally as bad as you know the prospect of instead of going to the Bahamas going to South Dakota and so now we have this opportunity let's do our own thing all right so I want to spend a couple minutes speculating on the teams that might be coming to Cameron Indoor for this soon to be named I'm sure event that that Duke wants to put on we also know from reports this week from Andy Katz that the Champions Classic which pits Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, and Michigan State together every year, everyone knows about that, is getting pushed back into the beginning of December and is going to be played at the bubble site in Orlando. So those teams are, Duke is already going to play one of those games. And then the ACC Big Ten Challenge is also going to happen also in Orlando, probably about a week later in, in still in early December. So knowing that Duke has those two games lined up, we I don't believe we have ACC Big Ten Challenge opponents picked out yet, but Duke usually gets one of the very best teams because they try to match like for like between the two conferences. Let's speculate a little bit, and I'll start with Jason. Which teams either do you think Duke is excited to invite? Do you think you would be excited to see? Who 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 should we be looking forward to seeing in Cameron in in the social justice forward event this fall? Uh, look, we're we're just going to blindly speculate. We're just going to wildly, you know, do whatever we want here. So, so what the heck? I would like to see. I think there are a lot of interesting ways you can go with this. I would like to see really good teams. I think that's the way to make it into a really, really special tournament. I mean, look, there, you you could say, hey, let's do a Duke family thing with Arizona State, Marquette, Howard, Central Florida, Northwestern, Harvard, and Niagara. All of those schools coached by by you know co- former Coach K players. 
which would be a, a, a ton of fun. Um, and does but, the but, Jason does yeah. the does the winner of the tournament then get to play the Utah Jazz? Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that'd be an appropriate way to, to to close things out. Um, but but I I I actually think that that probably what makes the most sense is pick the best teams you can. That's the way to really get the attention of the basketball universe, which is why I I want to see I want to see Baylor, I want to see Wisconsin, I want to see Villanova, I want to see Gonzaga. Um, uh, you know, I want to see those kind of teams coming to play in this tournament. I, I think that I think that Duke will. Um, uh, Duke, Duke is a, as we said, Duke is a leader in this movement, and certainly, you know, the leader in the college basketball universe um, because of Coach K and because of our reputation, because of Cameron and a million other things. I, I think we're going to get some really, really studly teams. And and uh, the one thing I do want to say is I, I feel like there will be some focus on uh, uh, HBCUs. Um, I, I think you're going to see Howard invited to this thing. Um, I know that that's Donald will probably talk more about that, but um, Howard, you know, coached by Kenny Blakely, friend of the podcast. He's been on the podcast before. Great guy, um, a former Duke player and uh, and and a really interesting school. As we discussed, they have a stud recruit, McCurr Maker, coming in who uh, who is a really big time recruit for an HBCU and chose them because they are considered, you know, one of the leading HBCU basketball programs uh, and and Kenny, I think is really building something special there. I'd love to see Howard be a part of this. Um, I, Donald, what, you know, I, I know you've thought a little bit more about this than I have. You know, the other one I thought about was I, uh, you could also probably invite like Oregon and Wisconsin because uh, the protests we've seen in Kenosha and in Portland have been, have been a big part of this movement. Uh, and, and maybe you, you know, you sort of highlight some of the places that are really, uh, uh, standing out in the social justice movement in that kind of way. You know, Jason, the the last two, you kind of took out the words out of my mouth of, of two teams that I would have invited. Uh, so I'll go through the list of who I would invite and then kind of break down a couple of the uh, reasons why I'd invite some of them. Uh, obviously, Duke, uh, Wisconsin, Kentucky, Villanova from the Big East, Memphis from the American Athletic, uh, San Diego State, uh, Oregon, and Howard. Now, with Howard, as you mentioned, Kenny Blakeney, friend of the podcast. And the thing about this that makes it a little interesting is that Coach K obviously does not like to play. Uh, he doesn't like playing against former players or former assistants uh, under his coaching tree. So, but bringing him makes sense because, again, Howard's an HBCU. You're not going to talk about social justice activism without you know, involving the HBCUs and giving them that platform as well. Uh, and I think Howard, again, with uh, McCord Maker, I think Howard would be a great pick there. Oregon, I also picked because of the Oregon, Wisconsin, I picked because of uh, the protests and just the, the social justice that has been in the streets, literally there. But also with Oregon, you have that Nike connection and you have the dollars that would come in from Phil Knight to make this tournament big, as big as it possibly could be. Nike has done a lot with social activism. Uh, uh, just in the past and especially over the last uh, couple of months, it would be great to have them fully on board. I know Wisconsin is an Adidas school, but I think they still belong here. Uh, and then when it comes to teams like San Diego State and Memphis, those are teams that obviously have been very good over the last couple of years. Also, Memphis, a, a you know, when it comes to the civil rights movement, a big city that is involved in that. And really, when you have those two teams, you want to have it where you're not going to have teams that are just, you know, eight of the top 10. You want to have some teams that kind of spread in from some of these mid-major conferences that are also very good that can still have lead to a high-profile tournament. And I think Memphis and San Diego State really do that for this tournament. Uh, and then finally, because we're playing Michigan State in the Champions Classic that has now been moved, I keep Kentucky in, and that's why Michigan State is not a part of this, although I would probably have switched the two um, and had Michigan State in this if we weren't playing them in the Champions Classic. I think there are a couple of additional factors here. One is that the Pac-12 has still not backed down from their wanting to start sports at the beginning of January. So if that continues, I don't see how any of the Pac-12 teams we, – we you guys talked about Oregon – I don't think any of them are going to be able to travel. And even if they are, even if they are starting their season more in line with what the NCAA has laid out with late November, I don't see them, them opting to let teams travel across country for that. Although they could certainly lift those restrictions. It does seem like everything is fluid on the HBCU front. I'm surprised we didn't talk more about NC central. 
Duke has, has made a point of scheduling NC Central in both basketball and football uh, numerous times over the years. When NC Central joined Division One, I think it was about 12 years ago, their first Division One game was against Duke in Cameron Indoor. And and they are the, the the neighbors down the road, so I actually wouldn't be surprised if the that's a great HBCU, call, Sam. That's a great if the call. HBCU representation came um, from NC Central, which is also a pretty well respected program, even even sort of outside of just the HBCU community. I think broader basketball community, NC Central has has a bit of buzz. I also wouldn't be surprised if if Duke leaned more heavily on local teams. So maybe they get a handful, like a small handful of teams that are prominent programs. The you, you guys mentioned like the a team like Wisconsin, but then also sprinkle in more of the more of the local programs. You could see them inviting UNC Wilmington, Campbell, schools like that that are that are nearby, and maybe it'll be easier just logistically to get to get schools in there. It is interesting that Duke doesn't. Coach K doesn't like playing his former assistants. We've we've talked about that, and he also doesn't like bringing up old rivalries. Like you haven't ever seen Duke schedule an event with Connecticut to try to to try to renew, you know, a, an old rivalry with Connecticut. So I don't see Duke creating a tournament where they say, let's just play a bunch of teams that we've played in the tournament in famous games before and invite UConn, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Louisville, or Louisville's in conference now, but, you know, that maybe that set or, or Kentucky and call it a day. That doesn't seem like, like the way that Coach K would want to approach it. I think he would probably choose to invite other prominent coaches, so – Donald mentioned that that Tom Ezzo would be sort of a natural fit if we weren't already playing them and and local. I, I think that Duke likes playing the the schools in the Carolinas and, and in the region. So so I, I think there's going to be a mix of the prominent programs, perhaps Jay Wright's Villanova team, like like Jason mentioned, and then also some local schools like NC Central. So when it comes to the HBCUs, I think the one team that if we were talking about just invite the best HBCU that program is NCANT, which again is a team that we've played in basketball a couple of times. We've played them quite a bit in football. In football, they are far and away the best football program for HBCUs to the point where they are even leaving their conference to go to the Big South uh, next year. So I would have invited them, but keeping in line with the multi team event rules of inviting one team per conference, they are also, all these teams are in the same conference NC Central, NCANT, and Howard. So I think when it comes to national uh, implications and, and just national prestige, Howard is the most prominent HBCU in America. Everyone knows Howard. Everyone knows that it's an HBCU. So that's why I lean towards them over the other ones. But bigger I than Morehouse? Be... Wait, wait, wait. Bigger than Morehouse? I mean, I'm not going to get into a debate uh, over here, but yes, I would say <laughs> Howard is the number is the most prominent. Not, I'm not talking about among just black people, just talking about in general. We reduce it to just black people. I think it is a different debate. I wouldn't be surprised if they try to create kind of like two tournaments where one is an HBCU type of thing where they can be highlighted and have maybe more than just one or two teams in this tournament, having a side tournament where they are able to play uh, each other and just kind of basically give them a chance to play in Cameron and also elevate their platforms as well. Because I think this tournament that's what this is all about is elevating the platforms of the people who don't have them and giving the giving the the voiceless a voice and i think it would be interesting to see how they come about doing that and and bring it in some of these teams and some of these programs that don't get to shine that they should so as the schedule develops more for duke you'll certainly hear us talk about it when when we get news we we will react but i want to move on because we have a few other topics we want to get to the next one up is the is the NBA and the bubble and the conference finals that are going on. So obviously Duke's most prominent player that's left, we've talked about him extensively, is Jason Tatum, who is the best player on the Celtics. The Celtics were down 2-0 to the Heat. So I, I wanted to comment quickly on the fact that we recorded right before that, that series was getting going and we didn't get to react to the fact that the Celtics were in dire straits at the end of the, you know, as of Thursday night and into Friday, there was reports of, of locker room fighting there, there would, it, it, it did not look good for the Celtics. And then NCAA runner up Gordon Hayward was back from his injury. The Celtics rebounded on Saturday night and were able to beat the heat uh, pretty comfortably 
down the stretch, even though the, there was a there was a little bit of tension in, in the final minute. But for the most part, the Celtics were able to hold the heat at, at arm's length. The series is now 2-1, and the Celtics are, are definitely back in it. But Jason Evans, I wanted to come to you first because you have some stats that you've compiled about Jason Tatum's performance here in the playoffs, and I hope that we can discuss them a little bit here. So Jason Tatum in the regular season took his game to another level, which is why he was named third team all NBA. And I'm not going to go on another rant about why he should have been second team all NBA, but the bottom line should is, have been second team. Should, yeah. Period. in the story. We don't need to get into that. He, he took his game to another level in the regular season. He has taken it to yet another level in the playoffs. And I, and I think it's worth highlighting uh, it, it, his scoring is up to 25 to 25.3 points per game in the playoff, 25 points per game. I mean, that is a serious number. Um, his assists are up. He, he's averaging almost five assists per game. His rebounding is way up. This guy is routinely pulling down 12, 14 rebounds a game. He's averaging 10.3 rebounds a game. So I, I want to I say that again. In the playoffs, this guy is averaging 25 points and 10 rebounds per game. That is really, really impressive. And there was a wonderful article by ESPN's Kirk Goldsbury, which, which highlighted some of the ways that Jason Tatum's stats have improved this season and one of the really remarkable things he talked about was Tatum is as good a shooter as there is in the NBA on three pointers like just off the dribble unassisted unassisted threes a lot of guys in the NBA there are some great guys in the NBA who are great at when you pass them the ball they rise up and they take a three and that is a you know that is a hugely important part of the game. What Jason Tatum is great at is taking a three on his own, the unassisted three. His rate of shooting on unassisted threes, which means you're guarded, by the way, it means you're pulling up off the dribble. There's a guy in your face was four was better than forty one percent. That's that's by the way higher than Steph Curry's unassisted three rate in the past several seasons. Um, I, I mean Tatum has turned into a incredible three-point shooter. The other thing he's done is he's turned into, especially in the playoffs, he has turned into the true mark of an NBA star, which is a guy who gets the calls. He is averaging better than seven free throws per game. In fact, the only players, the only players in the NBA right now who get to the free throw line more than Jason Tatum are Jimmy Butler, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, and Kawhi Leonard. Uh, so and those are guys those are stars those are guys who are whistle hunters Jason Tatum has turned into a whistle hunter seven free throws per game that's one of the reasons his stats look so efficient that's one of the ways he scores 25 plus points and only takes like you know 16 17 shots per game it's because he's getting to the free throw line so much and then the last thing I wanted to mention that was highlighted in this article and I thought this was incredible one of the things we've talked about a little bit is that Tatum has turned into one of the best defenders in the NBA, which is a really big deal. This Celtics team, the reason the Celtics are a strong contender for the NBA Finals, the reason they're having such a great season is because they are such a good defensive team. So uh, this ESPN article pointed out that it tracked um, uh, NBA players on one-on-one half-court defensive matchups. And of the of the 97 players that that were in one-on-one matchups 250 times. It's this, you know, it's crazy. It's a stat that involves only guys who have a high volume of one-on-one matchups. Jason Tatum was number one, first, best player in the league at effective field goal percentage defense. That when you play him one-on-one in the half court, your chance of scoring is lower than any other player in the NBA. Think about that for a moment. It is a truly impressive thing that Jason Tatum has improved his defense to the point where he is arguably the best one-on-one defender in the entire league. Um, and combine that with the improved three-point shooting, you have a formula for Jason Tatum to be one of the best players in the league at this point and leading his team hopefully to the final. I think the Celtics are going to come back and go to the finals. Donald, am I, am I right about this? Yeah, I mean, with, with regards to the stats, uh, you were absolutely right. And, and really just to see how he's progressed so fast, it's been a marvel to see. And, and you know, we talked about the All-NBA teams and stuff. Keep in mind, everyone, that those teams, those votes did not include any games in the restart in the bubble, the seeding games or the playoffs. It just included everything pre-shutdown for the pandemic, which – I think really robbed him of that second team because if 
you know, if they had taken those seeding games into account, for example, he was the best player, uh, one of the best players in the bubble uh, at, at that time. So he w- he would have definitely made at least second. Not the best. D- Dame, Dame was the Dame best. Lillard, Dame Lillard was the best. And y- y- you could also <laughs> argue Devin Booker, he was probably third. Um, so, But he's still one of the top players in that bubble and would have probably secured a second team uh, at that point. But when it comes to – I do want to switch shift slightly. Uh, we mentioned briefly – the block that Bam Adebayo had on him in game one. I'm going to give my man some credit. He is not part of the best block in playoff history. That belongs to Tayshaun Prince. I said that last episode. I will say that this episode. And if you ask me next time, I will say the same thing. Tayshaun Prince on Reggie Miller is the best block in playoff history. The most important block. Now you can switch to, okay, is it the most important block? I still say no, because that was obviously LeBron James on Andre Iguodala in Game 7 in 2016 Finals. So keep in mind, Jason, everyone gets gets stuff. And honestly, it may not have been the best block in the playoffs. The block where Kawhi Leonard blocked Jamal Murray with his middle finger uh, to secure the game in that series, I think that might have been a better block than Bam Adebayo. But make no mistake, both teams are playing really well. I, I'm glad – You know, I, I hate saying I'm glad that the Celtics won last night, but I'm glad that they made this a series because – I think the series has a chance to be really great. And if they had lost that game to go down three, nothing, it wouldn't have been as good. It just would have been, you know, a matter of time because no team has ever come back from a three Oh deficit to win a series. But I think Boston, they've settled down a little bit. And I think Jason Tatum is, you know, played great last night. And I think we can expect that to continue over the rest of the playoffs. But I think having this game be serious is something that I think is going to be, something that we can all watch and marvel at because I think you're seeing two great teams play and it's kind of, I'm kind of glad that Jason Tatum is the guy. One of those guys that's kind of leading one of the best teams in the NBA and he's going to be that guy for the next decade. And then over on the other side, I, cause I think you guys have, have covered Tatum and the Celtics plenty over on the other side, the Lakers and Nuggets series tipped off. So technically it is a, it is a series between two Duke players because you have Quinn cook on one side and Mason Plumlee on the other side, not logging a ton of minutes for, for those teams, but, but you can see them. Mason Plumlee does get a few minutes that that series tipped off and, and was a, it was a fun first game. I think, uh, uh, Nuggets center Nikola Jokic was, was a little bit frustrated by the number of big men that, that the Lakers could throw at him, but we have seen the Nuggets come down from multiple 3-1 deficits in this playoffs, so do not count them out yet. We will keep following all of that NBA action as it progresses. We are going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we are going to talk a little bit about Duke football's very unfortunate loss to Boston College, as well as some further ACC basketball schedule speculation around Greensboro Coliseum. We'll be back right after this. Okay, welcome back, Duke fans. We are going to get into just a few minutes of discussion here about the football game that took place at Wallace Wade Stadium on Saturday. I don't think we want to dwell on it because I don't think that Duke football wants to dwell on it much. The Blue Devils lost to Boston College going away 26-6. to It was a tight game going into halftime. The only difference in the score was that Duke had missed an extra point. Uh, the Blue Devils seemed to be moving the ball well. They had committed a couple of turnovers, but you know, it seemed like they were going to recover from all of that. And then everything fell apart in the third quarter. Duke couldn't, couldn't convert multiple opportunities to score when they were in the red zone. They let Boston college take care, take advantage of a number of mistakes on the offensive side of the ball for Duke. And they end up in this route and to add insult to injury at the end of the game, Boston college football tweeted out a photo of the team and a reminder that they had been six point underdogs at the beginning of the day, which man, that, that, that part really stung. Duke has, has been pretty good over the last few years of not at has been good. The last few years at not losing the, the game against the point spread, even if they, even if they still lose the game. So this one was, was especially painful because Duke was the favorite going into the game. So Jason, I'll send it to you first Give me some thoughts on this game and maybe where Duke goes from here because the schedule continues to to pick up as we go along. Duke continues to play fresh teams the next couple of weeks. So how do you see the Blue Devils recovering from all of this and, and what did you see on Saturday? 
Well, we we praise the team for for the effort um, against Notre Dame. They the reason they were a six point favorite was because they looked so good, even though they lost in that game against Notre Dame. So it is only fair that that we turn around and you know call a spade a spade when Duke does not play well. That was an undisciplined and careless effort by Duke uh, against Boston College. I thought our defensive line was okay. I mean, we had a decent number of sacks. Uh, Demukeji had three and a half sacks, but the rest of the team was just was not good. Uh, actually, we we did a decent job running the ball. You know, we we our our our, our offensive line did a did a good job opening holes. Uh, the Boston College de- defensive line is is pretty good. So for us to rush for 134 yards was good, but but the turnovers and uh, it's just obvious. You can't turn the ball over five times and win the game. There's there's no question about that. Duke Duke drove inside the BC 30 six times. Six times we were inside the BC 30-yard line in the final three quarters of the game, and we came away with zero points in those six times. Uh, think about that. Three times we fumbled. Uh, three times we had turnovers. We fumbled or uh, two fumbles and an interception. Uh, we, we had a missed field goal that wasn't even close. It was like one of the worst field goal attempts I've seen in a long time. And, and then twice we got inside the 30 and then committed so many penalties on ourselves that we backed ourselves up and we had no chance to, to get any points. Um, what bothers me is I don't think that we are an untalented, bad team. There, there have been Duke teams in the past where I just went, okay, these guys are not an ACC caliber team. That is clearly not the case right now. We, I thought we were largely better than BC for a lot of this game, but our execution was too inconsistent. We made too many crucial mistakes, and uh, it, it wasn't just the turnovers, by the way. I mean, like, look at the long, BC had a long, a 60-plus yard TD pass early in the fourth quarter that basically ended the game. And it was a play where uh, I don't know if the safety or the defensive back was the one that messed up, but the defensive back clearly thought that Duke was in a zone because he let a wide receiver just run casually past him over the middle of the field. The problem is that the safety, there was no zone there. There was no safety there. So this wide receiver was, I mean, literally no one within 20 yards of him. I'm not exaggerating. No one within 20 yards of him catches an easily thrown ball and scores a 60 plus yard touchdown. That's the kind of poor execution, poor communication, um, uh, lack of discipline that kills a team. And I, I'll, I'll say this. I thought that Chase Bryce was not very accurate. Anything more than 10 yards, he was very, very likely to overthrow the ball. Um, I would have liked to have seen, uh, we heard that, that there was a, sort of a close QB battle, that it wasn't like automatic that Chase Bryce was going to be the starter. Um, uh, Gunnar Holmberg, especially, was supposedly challenging him a lot. I would have liked to see Gunnar Holmberg um, get a series or two toward the end of that game because Chase Bryce was not good at all. Um, and and the last thing I'll note is that I thought that I thought we were so bad in the second half that I think I saw the cardboard cutouts standing up and leaving the game. I may have been wrong about that. I mean, we have seen in the NBA bubble uh, games where even the virtual fans have left. I think that would have been indicative of yesterday's performance on the football field for us. Listen, I, I think you said a lot of what I was going to say. The the running game, I said, needed to improve. I thought it did. Uh, Mateo Durant had a nice long run for for the lone touchdown. Uh, Deion Jackson played pretty well. Uh, I thought the turnovers, we said we had to take care of the football. And having too many, you know, too many drives inside the 20 get ended because of a fumble or because of an interception. Just you can't have that happen. You got to be able to score points when you get into the red zone. And we, we had our way to get into the ends uh, into the red zone several times throughout the course of the game. And we just couldn't get it done. That was, I think the most uh, frustrating part is that we were able to move the football and then we would get to a point where we would kill ourselves with turnovers or with penalties that would take us out of, uh, out of range to, to really make an impact on the game. And BC capitalized on that. And w- one thing that we have to know is that, you know, I, I think we mentioned this last episode, but Duke is the first team in ACC history where their first four opponents, it will be their season opener. So literally next week we play Virginia, uh, which is a game that was moved up from November because of Virginia Tech having their first two games postponed due to COVID. And then we play Virginia Tech. And both of those teams will have been sitting for weeks and their only preparation will be for us. Meanwhile, we've had to play team after team and we have to learn that 
each of these teams are going at us. They have a game plan ready for us. We have to be able to adjust. I don't think we adjusted well in the second half to what BC was giving us. And I think when it comes to this team, we have to figure out where our leaders are going to come from. We, we've seen some flashes on defense. We've seen some flashes on offense. But we need to have guys that say, hey, when the, when the going is tough, when, when they give up some points, that they're the ones that are like, okay, guys, next, next play, we're going to go get this. Next drive, we got to go get this. Next series, we got to go get this. And I don't see that yet. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that it's not present. I'm just saying over the first couple weeks of the season, we haven't seen that yet. And I want to see that emerge against Virginia. We'll t- I know we'll talk about the Virginia game in itself later on midweek, but we have a couple of days to figure out what it is, what Duke team we're going to be. And uh, hopefully the coaching staff is talking with the players and the players are talking with themselves to say that performance that happened yesterday can't happen again the rest of the season because we will get lit up by some of these teams that we face down the road. The discipline, I think, is the is the biggest thing for Duke here. We have noted for years how disciplined Coach Cutcliffe's teams normally are. And Jason, you talked about all the penalties that that took away opportunities for Duke throughout the game. I think that's the part that, that Coach Cutcliffe is going to harp on the most this week in practice because for the most part, the the, the players know what they're supposed to do, but the offsides and the and the and the holding and the, all the all the penalties just over and over was so jarring to see from a Duke team. This might be one of those places we, we've we've tried to speculate on how the pandemic is, is sort of affecting the the players day to day. This might be one of those places where Duke just hasn't had maybe they didn't get enough practice, maybe, you know, trying to install a new offense with Chase Bryce. They just haven't had enough practice with each other to know how to get the snaps right, how to you know, how to, how to run the plays correctly. Maybe, maybe that is bleeding over into the fact that the team looks so undisciplined now, but we'll look ahead towards, towards next week. And, and hopefully Duke can pick up their first victory of the season. I do want to move on a little bit from football. Perhaps we'll, we'll get back together this week and, and talk more about the team, but I, I do want to move on from football to, because we are running short on time and need to get to a few closing thoughts. The first thing that, that I wanted Donald to comment on is this, this idea that came out this week from the Greensboro Coliseum that they are open to hosting the ACC for a little mini bubble regular season, basically, where they would have six weeks at the Greensboro Coliseum. All the ACC teams would show up and and they would get to play each other in a little round robin format. So, Donald, I said I'd start with you. What do you think about this idea? And do you think that it's feasible? Do you think it's going to happen? What are your thoughts? I think it could be useful. I just don't think it'll be useful for the ACC regular season. The reason why I say that is because the timing that they gave uh, the ACC just doesn't fit in line with what ACC, the regular season for the ACC would be. They are going to be, they offered November 23rd through January 10th. uh, And it's a 48 day window. And they said that they could host up to five games per day. And they would have the field house, the special event center. And I think even a couple of arenas or, or at or practice facilities at UNC Greensboro for teams to be able to in, use for practice. So I don't think the timing lines up completely for the ACC season, but there's a couple things that I think that the ACC could do with this. One, maybe you do half of the ACC Big Ten challenge here, and you have half of the teams come up with the Big Ten, and the Big Ten proposes a bubble somewhere in Big Ten country for the other half of the Big Ten challenge. And that way both conferences can have you know, sort of home games or home bubbles, at least where teams can come in and play. So there's that you could probably use for it. And then the other one is probably between Christmas and January 10th, the end of this window that they gave where the ACC uses that to kick off the season and has some teams where they can play several games to get some of them out of the way before students return to campus for the spring semester. So I don't think you can get a full ACC season in with this bubble. But I do think it's something that the ACC should consider uh, for to be useful, even if it's for non-conference games. You could, you know, let as we talked about in the last, uh, the first segment, maybe inviting some of these local teams like Elon, Charlotte, uh, Eastern Carolina, NC Central, NC A and T, maybe inviting some of those into this bubble and saying, okay, this can be a point where some of these ACC teams can play some non-conference games uh, in, in a in a closed environment. I, I just don't know how the timing is going to work for the ACC to use this specifically and solely 
for the regular season. I think that will require a, a complete overhaul of the of the schedule. And really, as we've seen with some of these tournaments that we're proposing, the, the Champions Classic, we won't be able to participate in a, in a full bubble for six weeks at the Greensboro Coliseum with the commitments and obligations that we already have. Jason, any further thoughts on the Greensboro bubble idea for the ACC? I, I think we're all we're all guessing and speculating how teams are going to try and put together safe situations, how conferences are going to try and put together safe situations. Um, and and uh, we don't know enough yet. Um, uh, this is one interesting idea. I think that they'll probably end up doing something there, um, whether it's, you know, some some non-conference games or or a, an actual, you know, a, a, some portion of the ACC schedule. Uh, it, it's there's too many moving parts right now, I think, for us to really have a great sense of of where things are going to come down um, re- regarding schedules and conference schedules and things like that. I, I won't be surprised if the ACC scales back games a little bit, tries to put it into a smaller window and and maybe has everyone play 14 conference games, which would be exactly one game against everyone else in the conference, seeing as there aren't uh, you know, if they did a bubble, there wouldn't really be a need for home games, so to speak. Um, and and you could feel like you developed something kind of fair by having everyone play everybody else once on a neutral floor and then staging a tournament uh, and and sort of calling calling that your ACC season. And I, I, I won't be surprised if Greensboro is in some way a part of that. I just don't know about the timing and, and there may be other locations as well. Among all of the other factors here, the one reason that I'm rooting for something like this to work is that I want quotes from Jim Beheim praising the ACC and praising Greensboro for making the basketball season happen because (laughs) nothing gets Jim Beheim's goat more than having to say nice things about Greensboro. We'll move on from there. The the, I I wanted to wrap up with a couple of, of positive notes for for some Dukies who we love. The first being Nolan Smith, director of basketball operations for the men's basketball team, was named this week as a Points of Light honoree. The Points of Light is a foundation named for uh, George H.W. Bush, the original George Bush. It's an independent, according to them, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization to encourage and empower the spirit of service. President Bush's vision says that what government alone can do is limited, but the potential of the American people knows no limits. So Nolan Smith was honored as a uh, George H.W. Bush Points of Light Inspiration honoree and will be participating in a ceremony to receive that award this week, which at a ceremony that includes all of the living former presidents. And so it's, it's a big honor for Nolan Smith. Duke put out a press release about it with with some nice quotes from Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, about Nolan Smith and all the work that he's been doing this summer around social justice. I also wanted to quickly do a uh, quickly give a shout out to Justin Robinson, former Blue Devil, who recently graduated for uh, signing his for signing his first professional basketball contract. He is headed over to the Adriatic First League, um, going to be um, going to be playing overseas this year and hopefully when we wish him all the best donald anything further about nolan smith or justin robinson well first of all it clearly goes to show that if you are a friend of the podcast good things can happen to you uh both j rob and nolan doing great things Uh, first of all for nolan it's a tremendous honor it shows the work that he's put in and really you know the people's champ living up to that name, being the man of the people and bringing people together in ways that we haven't seen uh, a lot of people do in this country. And I'm glad that he's getting the recognition for that. So congratulations to him. And for Justin Robinson to play in Europe to start his career, I think is a great fit for him. Uh, I know with the pandemic, he was, he probably would have had a chance to, you know, maybe try out for a, a, a G league team or even for an NBA team should the pandemic have not, transpire but I think this is uh, a good first step for him he's going to get some quality minutes and I think he can do well in Europe and really Europe he's going to make you know quite a bit of good money uh, playing over there so I I really wish him the best I we're we're sad that uh, I will reiterate we were we are sad that we were not able to witness the end of his career take flight in the way that it should have Uh, but we are so thrilled and proud for him that he is continuing his career uh, in Europe so congrats to him 
Yeah, and and by the way, uh, it's easy to sort of go. He's playing in the Montenegrin league, and and you know, be skeptical about that. Mornar Bar, the, the team he's playing for over there, is really good. They are they are one of the top. They are consistently like first or second in the Montenegrin first league. They go on and they play um, in in various you know Euro Cup, European Champions leagues competitions because they are so good in the Montenegrin league. That's sort of the way it works in Europe. If you do well in your country league, you, you then go on and play in uh, European wide uh, club competitions and Mornar Bar is one of the better teams over there. Uh, by the way, um, uh, he has some pretty good teammates on that team. Um, one of his teammates is uh, Jacob Pullen, who was a, like a borderline All-American, like a third team All-American for Kansas State just a few years ago. I mean, a really good um, shooting guard. And uh, Kenny Gabriel, who was uh, a double-digit scorer um, and, and the best player on Auburn uh, back in the, you know, right right around the, the turn of the decade. Um, Kenny Gabriel plays for Mornar Bar. This is, this is a pretty good team. Um, and I think it's a great place for J-Rob to begin to develop his, his pro game and his pro career. I won't be surprised. He is a guy who improved so much over the course of his time at Duke. And, and because of his ability to go um, inside and out, especially his ability as a big man to be able to shoot three-pointers, um, I won't be surprised if, if, we, if we see J-Rob carve out a, a, a pretty decent career, perhaps internationally, and, and he may make it back over here to the U.S. at some point. I, I, I hope he does. Um, and a really smart guy and a team leader, uh, you know, a great guy to have in the, in the clubhouse for sure. Um, so props for him. I'm glad he's going to earn a living at this stuff. And, and I think we have not heard the last of one of our favorite Dukies, considering this is a guy who, you know, probably, probably, you know, played in less than a hundred minutes of meaningful Duke action. Um, he is, he is really a, a, a person who is near and dear to our heart. And, uh, and remember folks, the first time any of you heard about J-Rob or heard from J-Rob was when as a high school recruit, he was a guest of the DBR podcast all those many years ago. So we brought him to you for the first time. And I will say the ABA league is, you know, a league that consists of all of the former Yugoslav republics and their basketball teams. So this is a very strong league and a lot of great players come out of this league and eventually make it, you know, even the young guys make it to the NBA. So it's not like he's going up against some slouches. He's going to get uh, up against some of the some of the best that Europe has to offer uh, when it comes to basketball talent. So he's really putting himself in a nice challenge and I think he will excel at it. So props again to Nolan Smith for his big honor. Good luck to Duke basketball report podcast, uh, original guest, Justin Robinson. And with that, we will leave it. We will be back hopefully sometime this week. It does seem like the ACC and NCAA basketball scheduling news is coming at a, at a quicker pace every, every subsequent week. So perhaps we'll have more to react to this week. In the meantime, of course, if you have questions for us, you can email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate us wherever you find podcasts so that we can grow our little podcast network family here. And until next time, for Jason Evans and for Donald Wine, this is Sam Klein. This has been episode 233 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. Thank you.